Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Mike Jakes joins us now to offer insight into the Federal Circuit, its recent cases, and their potential implications. Mike is currently the leader of Finnegan's appellate practice. He has appeared in over 100 appeals at the Federal Circuit and argued nearly 50 times. Mike, we usually talk about very recent cases from the Federal Circuit, but I understand there weren't many new cases last month. What's going on at the Federal Circuit? Well, since the pandemic, the Federal Circuit's output of presidential opinions has changed. Uh, Before last year, we would typically see a dozen or more new presidential opinions every month. But in uh, January 2021, last month, there were only three presidential opinions in patent cases. In fact, in January, there were only seven presidential opinions total all across the federal circuit's jurisdiction, or about um, 10% of the decisions for the month. And how does that compare to the federal circuit's output of presidential opinions in past years? So in uh, past years, the federal circuit would typically issue presidential opinions in around a third of the cases, sometimes more, sometimes less, but a, a fairly good number of presidential opinions every month. And about a third of the decisions were typically by summary affirmance without any opinion. That's under the Federal Circuit's Rule 36 procedure. That number has at times crept up to over 40% of the cases. But uh, over time, I'd say overall, roughly about a third of the cases decided without an opinion. And uh, then there are non-presidential opinions. Uh, Those were typically used to decide about a third of the cases on appeal as well. So roughly an equal number about a third each of presidential, non-presidential, and uh, summary affirmances. Okay. And what does it mean when an opinion is not presidential? So under the Federal Circuit's rules, an opinion may be designated as non-presidential if, according to the rule, the panel determines that it does not add significantly to the body of law. Now, non-presidential opinions, they're written primarily for the parties as opposed to setting forth principles of law for the public, they can range from a few pages to much longer. I got a 47-page non-presidential opinion in one case. So for the first 25 years of the Federal Circuit's existence, the court expressly prohibited the citation of non-presidential opinions. You really, you didn't dare cite them in a brief without some repercussions. But the rules of appellate procedure were changed in 2007 to allow citation of non-presidential opinions. And so the Federal Circuit had to change its practice to conform with the new rules. Federal Circuit's rule now says that either the parties or the court may refer to a non-presidential opinion, but the court will not treat it as binding precedent. On this podcast, we usually focus on the presidential opinions because they are the only ones that are binding precedent and have uh, presidential value going forward. Non-presidential opinions, by the definition and the rule, they are not supposed to add significantly to the law. While they may be interesting, we um, usually don't focus on them as pronouncements of the law. And so have we seen a change in the number of presidential and non-presidential opinions at the Federal Circuit recently? Yes, definitely. Over the last year, there have been an increasing number of non-presidential opinions. Last month in January, 75%, full three-quarters of the decisions were by non-presidential opinions. As I said, uh, 10% were by presidential opinion. There were seven total and only three patent cases, which is unusually low for the federal circuit. 
And there were only 15% summary affirmances by Rule 36, which is also low by past practice of the Federal Circuit. And do you have a theory for why that's changed? I think it may be related to the changes in oral argument procedure at the Federal Circuit. The last in-person oral arguments were in March 2020, just about a year ago. And I remember the time very well because I actually argued three appeals that week. The next week, our office closed and we were all under stay-at-home orders. And the court has been conducting oral arguments by telephone ever since then. But that's not the only change in the oral arguments. Federal Circuit has also canceled many oral arguments in the last year. Um, Before last year, the court would have oral arguments in every case, or at least every case where the parties were represented by counsel, unless the parties waived oral argument, which was rare. So every, every case where they're represented by attorneys, the court would schedule argument. And that's not the same as for other circuits. There are other circuit courts that don't have argument in every case. But in the last year, the court has canceled many of the oral arguments. First, looking at April of 2020, the month that the the court shut down, the Federal Circuit canceled about 65% of the oral arguments scheduled for that month. That percentage has gone down somewhat since then. In January last month, 50% of the arguments were canceled. And this month, February, the court canceled about 30%. But it's been around that number every month, 30% or more of the oral arguments being canceled each month. At the uh, Federal Circuit's Bench and Bar Conference last year, one of the judges said that they usually try to write at least a non-presidential opinion for those appeals where the argument is canceled. So that may explain the increase in non-presidential opinions. And it could also explain the decrease in summary affirmances under Rule 36. Mm. And are there any plans for the Federal Circuit to go back to having more oral arguments? Not that the court has announced. The oral arguments in March are still by telephone, and there is still restricted access to the National Court's building. I do think there's some hope or expectation that the Federal Circuit will go back to its uh, pre-pandemic practice of having oral arguments in every case. Uh, Several of the judges who participated in the judges panel at the Federal Circuit Bench and Bar Conference last year, they seem to agree that the court will go back to its previous practice of having oral arguments in most appeals, but it will depend on each panel. Right now, the cases are assigned to a panel for oral argument, and the panel will decide whether or not to go ahead with it. The panel has to be unanimous in its decision not to have oral argument. If one of the judges wants it, they will they will go ahead. But uh, it remains to be seen whether or not that practice will change. But certainly the hope or the expectation is that it will go back to its usual practice. Okay. And although there may not be any new Federal Circuit decisions from last month to discuss, there still seems to be a lot going on with the Federal Circuit's jurisdiction and cases at the Supreme Court. Yes, that's exactly right. The case everyone was talking about last year, including me, the Arthrex case, It's going to be argued at the Supreme Court on March 1. Now, as most people may remember, the Federal Circuit held in the Arthrex case that the administrative patent judges on the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, the PTAB, were unconstitutionally appointed. So there's a a law that gives the Patent Trial and Appeal Board its authority. The administrative judges under that law are appointed by the Secretary of Commerce. Congress can delegate the Senate's advice and consent rule to the heads of departments for, quote, inferior officers. 
But under the Appointments Clause of the Constitution, the Senate must confirm principal officers. In Arthrex, the Federal Circuit held that the judges were not inferior officers, and so they should have been appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The Arthrex panel then said it could fix the constitutional problem by stripping out the part of the law that prevented the judges from being fired without cause. This reduced them back to inferior officers, and so it cured the problem with their appointment by the Secretary of Commerce. The court vacated the board's written decision in Arthrex and sent the case back for a different panel of the board to be assigned. It also did that in about 100 other appeals from the PTAB that were pending before the federal circuit. So both parties, the government, filed cert petitions, and they will share the oral argument at the Supreme Court on March 1st. The court is going to hear argument on two issues. First, whether the PTAB judges are principal officers or inferior officers. Interesting constitutional question. And second, whether the federal circuit's fix uh, cured any appointments clause defect. Now, as is typical in cases like this, there were around 25 or so amicus briefs filed, a pretty good number, but not that unusual. The Supreme Court, after the argument, should issue its decision in Arthrex by the end of the term, which is in June 2021. Okay, so lots of interest in Arthrex. Are there any other Supreme Court cases from the Federal Circuit to keep an eye on? Uh, yep, there are. The uh, Supreme Court granted another cert petition from the Federal Circuit in January. That case is Minerva Surgical versus Hologic. And the issue there is the doctrine of a sign or estoppel. Now, a sign or estoppel has been alive and well in the Federal Circuit for many years. Under that doctrine, an inventor who assigns his or her patent rights can't later challenge the validity of the patent. So in other words, a sign or estoppel prevents someone, an inventor, from assigning a patent and then claiming that the patent is worthless. So in this case, one of the inventors of the two patents in suit started a competing company, and they ended up as the defendant in the case, the company that was accused of infringing the inventor's own patents. The district court ruled that the accused infringer company, the inventor's company, could not challenge the validity of the patents because the inventor was barred by a sign or estoppel from attacking his own patents. Now, the Federal Circuit on Appeal affirmed the district court's application of a sign or estoppel. The court rejected the argument that a sign or estoppel is inconsistent with other Supreme Court precedent, namely the 1969 decision in Lear versus Atkins, where the Supreme Court abolished licensee estoppel. Now, licensee estoppel, it's a somewhat related doctrine to a sign or estoppel, but uh, the Federal Circuit said they are different and distinct. So in this uh, Minerva versus Hologic case, the Supreme Court is going to consider the continued viability of a sign or estoppel in patent law. Interestingly, in the case that was heard at the same time uh, between these parties, the Federal Circuit also said that a sign or estoppel does not apply in inter-party review proceedings before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. So the Supreme Court is not going to consider that issue, however, and rejected the patent owner's cross-petition. Uh, the Minerva versus Hologic case, it hasn't been briefed yet on the merits or scheduled for oral argument, but it looks like the case will be argued in the last two weeks of April with a decision by the end of June. Uh, that's not all, though. Uh, while the uh, Supreme Court 
continues to turn down every cert petition raising patent eligible subject matter under Section 101. And there have been very many of them. At the end of January, the court asked for a response to the petition filed by American Axle. This American Axle case involves a patent on a method of making automobile drive shafts that had liners with, uh, to reduce noise and vibrations. A panel of the Federal Circuit held that the patent claimed nothing more than a law of physics known as Hooke's Law. And even though it was in the context of a drive shaft, it was ineligible for patenting under 101. Now, the full Federal Circuit split six to six on whether to rehear the American Axle case in bank. And as a result, the petition for rehearing was denied. Now, I don't think we can read too much into the Supreme Court asking for a response to the cert petition. The court has denied cert in uh, similar cases, raising 101 issues. But I think it's worth keeping an eye on uh, the American Axel case. Okay, very good. And are there any other federal circuit cases we should watch out for in the coming months? Yes. uh, Just last week, uh, the federal circuit vacated the panel decision in GlaxoSmithKline versus Teva Pharmaceuticals. Teva had filed a petition for rehearing in this case in December, but rather than rehear the case in bank, the panel will first re-decide the case. The panel withdrew the opinion and will hear, hear oral argument next week on February 23rd. This is an unusual procedure. I, I don't remember ever seeing this uh, before from the Federal Circuit. The panel is going to rehear the case with additional oral argument. So if you're wondering um, what the fuss is all about, this is uh, the so-called skinny label case. It's an important uh, case and an issue for pharmaceutical companies. Uh, A skinny label, it's a term that's used for an approved indication for selling a generic drug where there are other uses or indications for the drug that are still patent protected. Those additional patent protected uses are carved out and the skinny label is only for the approved indication, which is not protected. Now, in a two-to-one decision with a strong dissent by the chief judge, Judge Prost, the Federal Circuit revived a jury verdict of induced infringement against the generic company. The court said that a jury could find inducement in this case where the generic company had promoted as an approved generic version of the drug where there was still one indication for the drug that was patent protected. The re-argument will be limited just to this induced infringement issue. There's another Arthrex-related case to watch in the Federal Circuit, and that's Piano Factory versus Scheidmeier. This case raises the Arthrex issue, but this time with respect to judges of the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board and whether they were constitutionally appointed. The law is not exactly the same, but uh, the Arthrex issue is common to the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. Oral argument in the Piano Factory case was scheduled for November last year, but then the argument was postponed and the case stayed until our, after Arthrex is decided. So we'll have to wait until probably June to know what happens with that case. And there's one final case to watch. It's not a, it's not a huge case, but it has a very interesting issue. The case is Game and Technology Company versus War Gaming Net. This is an appeal from an attorney fee award that comes from the Central District of California. 
the plaintiff patent owner in the case has appealed an attorney fee award against it uh, for an exceptional case under Section 285. The fee award, though, included fees for work on the related IPR proceeding in the patent office. Now, there may be another district court case or two on this issue, but I don't believe it's been addressed by the federal circuit. And today, many validity challenges now take place in PTAB proceedings instead of the district courts. They can often be dispositive of the case. So the question of whether a district court can award fees under 285 in an exceptional case, and those fees include fees for the PTAB proceeding, that's an interesting issue that could have a significant impact. So although there's not a lot of money at stake in this case, it's an interesting one to follow. And so I'll be keeping an eye on Game and Technology Company versus Wargaming now. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Our guest has been Mike Jakes, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan. Finnegan.